G'day, and welcome to Stick Together, bringing you union news, workers' stories, and discussion on social justice issues. This program is produced in the Melbourne studios of 3CR and broadcast right around the country by the Community Radio Network. My name's Matt Conkle. A couple of weeks ago now, delegates to the 2018 ACTU Congress elected Michelle O'Neill to be its new president. This week, we bring you a special edition of Stick Together, including an extended interview with Michelle, touching on her work in unions and some of the challenges facing the movement today. But first, some union news. Members of the Australian Workers' Union at Blue Scope Steel will soon vote on whether to take industrial action at Port Kembla's steelworks. The workers are campaigning for fair pay increases after the company's operations have turned around since members agreed to restructuring in 2015. Blue Scope had threatened to close the Port Kembla plant in 2015, but members agreed to significant wage cuts and a four-year wage freeze in order to keep the plant open. At the time, it was reported that the deal would cost some members more than $20,000 a year and that the company stood to save more than $60 million through the deal. Yet despite now turning profits of more than $500 million every six months for the last 18 months, much higher than the cost savings made through the original deal, the company is now refusing to provide pay increases above 2.5% per annum. The union is seeking pay increases of 10% over the next three years and the return of penalty rates for workers who take sick leave on rostered weekends. National Secretary of the AWU, Daniel Walton, said, It seems as soon as Blue Scope grew deep pockets, it developed short arms. Blue Scope workers were asked to share in the pain and they did. Now all they want is to share in the gain. We'll bring you more as the story develops. Industrial activity amongst maintenance staff at Victorian bakeries escalated last week, with electricians and maintenance workers walking off the job simultaneously at two different companies. ETU and AMWU members at Tip Top Bakeries and Goodman Fielder both stopped work last Friday, protesting unsatisfactory wage negotiations with their companies. The two companies are the largest manufacturers of sliced bread in Victoria and Australia. They produce a number of different brands but are also engaged to make the $1 white bread loaves for some of the major supermarket chains. The workers claim that both companies are offering substandard pay increases that do not allow the skilled workers to keep up with the rising cost of living. The ETU is also reporting that tip-top bakeries are pushing cuts to penalty rates and the introduction of a lower tier of wages for new workers. The workers from across both companies joined together and held a joint barbecue out the front of tip-top in Dandenong, located in Melbourne's industrial southeast. Further stoppages are likely. Follow the Victorian branches of the ETU and AMWU for more details. On-demand food delivery service Fedora has made the decision to leave the Australian market. The decision comes on the back of legal action taken by the Fair Work Ombudsman against the company, alleging gross underpayment and sham contracting amongst its staff. If successful, the Ombudsman's case would see workers classified as employees instead of contractors. This would mean that Fedora would be liable to pay significant amounts of money as back pay. The Transport Workers Union, which represents bicycle couriers, has called on the federal government to force Fedora to put aside a pool of money to pay these workers if the ombudsman's case is successful. To get an idea of scale, the union says that three out of four workers in the on-demand delivery sector are currently being paid less than the minimum wage, and that more than 75% of riders are working more than 25 hours a week. You can quickly see how this could turn into millions of dollars for the company if found guilty of sham contracting. In yet another example of how the gig economy is failing workers, Fedora gave riders less than two weeks notice that they would no longer have any work. If you're a rider affected by these changes, you can contact the union by googling TWU Transport Workers Union. You're listening to Stick Together. 
workers' stories and union news. Broadcast around the country every week on the Community Radio Network. In early 2018, ACTU President Jed Carney vacated her position to contest the federal by-election in the seat of Batman. Delegates to the recent ACTU Congress in Brisbane elected Michelle O'Neill to become the new president. Many would know Michelle from her time at the TCUFUA, the Textile Clothing and Footwear Union, particularly her time there as National Secretary. This week, we caught up with Michelle and spoke to her about how she started in the union movement and her views on some of the political questions facing the movement today. Michelle, many people would know you from your many years at the TCFUA, but your political activity started much earlier than that. How did you become politically active? Well, I came from... uh, I'm the youngest of five daughters, and my sisters, my big sisters, were quite a bit older than me. And so my first sort of exposure in terms of political activism was really via them. Um, I can remember as a 10-year-old, my sister taking me to the the tent embassy, the Aboriginal tent embassy outside the, what's now the old Parliament House in Canberra, and I remember that very clearly, and sort of, and it was pretty uh, moving and formative and educational for me, and then as a teen- teenager, I was active in a whole range of political activism around anti-apartheid and freeing Nelson Mandela, around issues to do with land rights, and was very active in the campaign around homelessness and low-cost housing as well. What was the very first union you were a member of? So the first union I joined was when I started my very first job when I was 14 and I got a job as a waitress and I joined what is United Voice today, but it was the Liquor and Hospitality Workers Union at the time. Every trade union official that I've ever spoken to has a moment in their lives that they realised the importance of the union movement and that they wanted to dedicate themselves to it. What was your moment? Well, it was that early, really. I... uh, when I was just 14 and working in that club, I was sexually harassed by one of the supervisors and at first it was something that I just really had no idea how to deal with and didn't talk to anyone about and uh, it wasn't just once, it was sort of continual and eventually I got brave enough to talk to some of the other uh, union members older women that I was working with at the time and they already had a bit of an inkling of what was happening and so they were really fast to jump in around me and to talk to me about talking to the delegate and they helped me talk to the union delegate about it and really it was that very first experience of collectivity in a workplace about workers sticking together and having your back and giving you the courage to speak up and knowing that you weren't alone in speaking up and then doing that and then seeing the result of that unity and that strength that comes from workers sticking together which resulted in the Uh, behaviour stopping and him being dealt with uh, discipline in the workplace that my uh, safety was immediately um, assured and plus I just had that powerful feeling of what it was like not to be alone. As I said at the start of the interview, most of the people would probably remember you or know you from your time at the TCFUA, the Textile Clothing and Footwear Union. How did you get involved with that union? I had friends and family that were in the clothing industry and I worked a number of jobs. I worked some short-term contract jobs for the union and I also worked in two 
do jobs in the industry, one where I sewed the labels on the back of jumpers and, uh, you know, that small straight um, bit of sewing that sews just the label on. And then the other was when I ran a bank of knitting machines in a knitting mill. And uh, then I was back at the union, went back to the union, and then I worked pretty much every job in the union. I uh, was an organiser for a long time. I was an industrial officer and then I was elected to be the Victorian Assistant Secretary, then Secretary and then the National Secretary. During this time, the Labor Party removed tariff barriers um, on that industry, which saw a big transformation. Can you tell us what you learnt through that period? Well, it was a shocking period in terms of the impact on our members and of workers in the industry because the successive governments had the view that changing um, tariffs and quotas in the industry was the right thing in terms of their economic policy but of course what they got completely wrong was what was going to be the impact on workers and their families and communities. There was this sort of economic theory at the time that all these workers who were going to lose a job out of this industry would sort of magically find jobs in others and that somehow the net effect would be that everyone would be okay. Now that's not what happened. Uh, In reality thousands and thousands of workers lost their jobs and they didn't find other ones. Um, The great bulk of them were left either, well, sort of three things happened. Um, uh, A third of them never worked again, and that doesn't mean that they weren't wanting to work. They never found work again or weren't able to get work again. A third of them ended up in secure, uh, sorry, in insecure part-time casual uh, work and weren't able to find permanent work. And then a third were managed to find some sort of permanent employment. But it was devastating. You never forget that sort of wholesale daily experience of having to be with workers when they're losing their jobs. So we did a few things. We fought back. So we fought hard in terms of um, changing industry policy. We were successful on a number of occasions in getting changes to those tariff um, proposals or legislation to uh, a couple of times we got a pause in the tariff reductions, got them stopped. A few other times we you know, changed outcomes. But both Labor and Liberal governments were hell-bent on that being the policy they were going to implement. The other thing we did was fought every factory closure. So we never accepted that there wasn't another way. And when you looked at what was going on for those businesses, many of them were profitable. It wasn't that they were being forced to close because they had to. It was actually a choice about where they could make bigger profits. So it was that vicious approach to capitalism where it's, well, we could keep running this factory here in Melbourne or we could close it and import our goods from some other country in the world where workers have no proper protection in terms of their safety and are paid well below a living wage and are exploited. Um, And, yep, we'll make more money out of that, so we'll do that. So it was a campaigning constant campaigning mode and fighting mode and then the other thing of course that happened at the same time is there was all of that um, rapid movement not just offshore of jobs but jobs into backyards and so the union's campaign around the growth in home-based outwork and workers that were working at home alone in their garage or lounge room and getting you know a third of the legal minimum wage and being treated as contractors became a, a major part of our campaign as well. 
the union actually achieved some very special provisions in industrial legislation. Those familiar with the Fair Work Act would see reference to outworkers all the way through it. Can you tell us how that came about and why it was important to get that legislative fix? Well, this was a long campaign and it was one that our union fought, but we also were part of forming the Fair Wear campaign with other activists and unionists and groups in the community that realised that uh, the exploitation of home-based outworkers in Australia was uh, was disgraceful but also extreme. I mean, workers were getting 2 3 $4 an hour. They were never seeing a cent of super, never seeing any annual leave or sick leave, uh, no overtime payments and being treated as if we well, are being forced to set up companies and have business names and numbers in order to just get the work. Like it was a complete sham designed to maximise the opportunity to exploit people. And so we... Um, ran a long campaign that had a number of components, firstly in winning rights in the award for those workers to um, uh, receive fair paying conditions, but also for the union to be able to find where that work was going. So over a period of 15 years, we won both award and legislative changes, and that sort of culminated in 2012, where we got into the Fair Work Act, something that deemed all of those workers as employees. So what that means is it doesn't matter whether you're called a worker or employee or a contractor. If you're working at home in that industry, you've got the same same rights as a worker in a factory in terms of your paying conditions. Secondly, it meant that... Um, that you could recover money up the supply chain. So, if you were had, if you were subject to wage theft, um, you didn't weren't being paid properly, you weren't getting your super, all those things. Then, instead of just trying to get the money out of the person that dropped the work at your door, you could go up the supply chain to the label um, eventually that was contracting out that work to get your money recovered. And thirdly, it gave uh, the union rights to be able to enter workplaces, places like sweatshops without 24 hours notice so that we were able to make sure that we could find workers and represent them and make sure they were getting the fair pay and conditions and organise them. And then the other thing as part of those package of things in the award and the agreement was we won obligations about transparencies in supply chains so that companies who are giving work out are obliged to give information to the union every quarter as well as to the Fair Work Commission about where that work's going and what are the conditions that it's been given out in, uh, which are really important. And, and that package of changes are still seen as sort of world-leading, really, in terms of transparency and obligations in a supply chain. You're listening to Stick Together, right around the nation on the Community Radio Network. This week, we're interviewing Michelle O'Neill, newly elected president of the ACTU. During your time as TCFUA National Secretary and before, you were involved deeply in international solidarity campaigns. Can you recall some of the big ones and tell us why there was a role for the TCFUA in fighting those campaigns? For the TCFUA, we realised that the TCF industry was at the forefront of globalisation and really the literal cutting edge of that in terms of how vicious it was and what was happening. And it wasn't just about jobs being lost or outwork in Australia. It was about the whole industry was operating on a global basis and it was a model of saying let's distance the worker from the company and the label and let's look for the cheapest place on earth to make goods. And so we we knew that our international work was critical 
for our members here in Australia and the industry, but also we understood that if unless we were part of fighting and winning through solidarity improvements in the paying conditions for workers around the world, then this was just going to continue as a model that would drive down the rights for workers everywhere in the world. So it, it was a very real international commitment uh, for us that drove our international work. And one I would mention as um, one that is probably well known to people is the fight around safety um, for workers in Bangladesh. So this was something we were active in um, over many years that came to a head with the collapse of Rana Plaza in 2013 where 1,134 workers were killed in an act of industrial homicide when they were forced to work in a building that was collapsing. The repercussions of that globally were so massive and for our union and for the unions that we worked with around the globe, we were going to make sure we were absolutely determined that those lives weren't going to be lost in vain and that we would force the brands that were manufacturing in Bangladesh to be held to account for the conditions of workers in those factories. And out of that came the Bangladesh Fire and Building Safety Accord, which was the first agreement globally that is a legally enforceable agreement between brands and unions around the requirement to have safe workplaces in Bangladesh. And it's just moved on to its uh, second stage, if you like, reiteration just this year. It's now been in place for five years and it's just been re-signed by the majority of brands, but not all of them yet. How does or maybe how should the union movement reconcile its goal of international solidarity with its other goal of ensuring good quality jobs and training opportunities for its members? Um, I, I don't think that... I think these things are absolutely compatible. So, you know, Australia has and is an extraordinarily diverse multicultural nation and that's a great thing and something we should be proud of and something we should continue to fight for but also a lot of that has been built on the rights of people to permanently migrate to Australia and what we've seen change over the last few decades is the increase in temporary short-term visas that alongside the insecurity of that in terms of people's ability to come to Australia and stay here, it also, of course, opens up the capacity for massive exploitation of those workers because the companies and businesses that are bringing them here for those short-term jobs have been able to use those positions to drive down paying conditions, offer substandard conditions to the workers doing the work and, of course, hold over them the threat of deportation, not just the threat of a loss of job, which is, of course, a very powerful threat for any worker, but imagine combining the threat of losing your job and being deported together and how oppressive and powerful that is. So that effect is is not good for anyone. It's not good for the workers from other countries on short-term visas that are then subject to that sort of uh, exploitation and it's not for Australian workers who are then seeing the impact of those driving down of paying conditions on their own paying conditions. Global solidarity and, and an international approach to workers' rights and to trade is is good for Australian workers as, go, go, as well as being good for workers around the world. And we should be, uh, I don't think, entering into these bilateral trade agreements that really don't properly consider labour rights and the effect of the econ on the economy 
more broadly. I mean, the problem with our trade agreements, for example, is that they're done in secret. We never see them till they're done. You know, the government spruiks them as being good for parts of the economy. That's not tested. It doesn't go to Parliament. There's no public opportunity to scrutinise it before they're signed on. And in reality, we see the effect of that as as often not delivering what was promised by the government that signed on to them. You know, if we're going to be doing trade agreements, they should be multilateral ones, multilateral ones that guarantee labour rights for workers in in the countries that are participating in those and not ones that, that I suppose really uh, put the emphasis on what's in the interest of multinational companies um, rather than the interest of ordinary workers, whether they be in Australia or somewhere else. Coming back to another issue about workers crossing borders, um, you've been an outspoken critic of the ALP's position on people seeking asylum in this country, and I'm just wondering what role you see for the ACTU in the debate for a fair and more humane policy in this area? Well, I've been an outspoken critic of the government as well. Um, I've been part of, for many years, is campaigns to improve the rights of refugees and asylum seekers trying to come to Australia, and that came out of my own, my own view but also came very strongly from the views of the TCF members that I represented and many of them were uh, people that came to Australia as refugees or asylum seekers and it was a very real issue for the members of my union. Here at the ACTU, we've got a very strong policy about refugees and asylum seekers that matches what I've been um, supporting for many years. And that policy was just adopted again and strengthened again at the Congress that was held a couple of weeks ago when I was elected. So we will continue in the union movement to stand up for the rights of asylum seekers. We've got clear views about it. It's a, it's an it's, sorry, it's a union-wide policy through the ACTU, and I'm going to be proud to continue to represent it. Turning now to your role at the ACTU, there's obviously a very large campaign being run out of the ACTU to change the rules, to change industrial legislation. What is your role going to be in the Change the Rules campaign? Sally's been doing an absolutely fantastic job and um, I'm going to have the, the honour and the privilege of working alongside her in this role as the president. Uh, we, we've got a clear common view and it's the view of the union movement that this is the the fight that we have to win. Uh, this is such an important moment in terms of what's happening here in Australia and around the world. The understanding about how unfair a system we have, the effects of inequality, what that means for ordinary people is one that I think is uh, growing in terms of public understanding of that every day. And the Change the Rules campaign is about saying that we need to win fundamental change to be able to put workers back in a stronger position to change their pay and conditions, also to have a system where there is a fairer tax system, for example, where we have more money and support for things like health and education and the things that matter to working class people as well. So the campaign's a big one, It's but it's also one that I think um, is of the moment uh, because it does touch what is the experience of union members and of workers. So the increase in insecure and um, casual work, the incidences of wage theft, the problems with bargaining where in, where so many workers now are not able to be able to effectively bargain to win increases in pay and then the 
the reality of the minimum wage being so low and nothing near a living wage, all of which have, have combined and it, to make um, a system that's just broken, not working for workers. And, of course, we also need the capacity for workers to stick together and to stick together and take action when they need to take action to be able to support their claims. So I think the campaign is gaining momentum, it's gaining public support, rank and file members of unions are excited about it. It's something that I think is showing the important role of the trade union movement in Australia, both for today and the future, but also drawing on the history of some of the very best things that we have in terms of rights in this country came out of struggles of our union movement and um, I'm looking forward to being part of winning those again. If listeners out there want to get more involved in the Change the Rules campaign, um, right across the country, how can they how can they get more involved? Well, the first and best thing you can do is join your union. Um, so being a member of the union is, of course, the most powerful way you can be active because it's not none of this is going to be won by individuals. It's won by what we collectively can stand together and fight for. So the first step is being part of the union movement and joining your union. The second uh, is then being through your union and your activism, finding out what's going on in the campaign. And there's something new happening and every day and ways that people can be organised. Uh, there's activist groups in um, many regional areas as well as in particular communities that are going to be important in the upcoming election. Uh, the election is part of the campaign. It's not the whole campaign. But we do need to change the government to be able to effectively win changes, uh, the other changes we're looking for in terms of rights and changing the type of labour market we've got and the sort of trade agreements we were talking about before, for example. And then just coming up in the next short while, we're going to be asking workers to dial in with their stories or dial in or email in with their own stories of what's happening to them. And that's going to happen in August between the 13th and 17th. There's going to be a national door knock on the 1st and 2nd September and uh, we're also going to be having a national telephone in October. They're just some examples. There's so many ways at a workplace level, on the streets on a, and online that people can be engaged. I just really want people to be part of this campaign. It, it's only going to be one if we're mobilising many, many, many people to fight for it. Well, that's all we have time for this week on the show. Thanks very much to Michelle for joining us. If you want to get more involved in the Change the Rules campaign, just head over to www.changetherules.org.au. Stick Together is produced in the Melbourne studios of 3CR with the generous financial support of the Community Broadcasting Federation. It's beamed right around the nation on the Community Radio Network. You can do your part to keep worker stories on the air by calling your local community radio station and subscribing today. You can contact the producers of this show by emailing us at sticktogether3cr at gmail.com or calling us on 0394198377. Or you can also connect with us on Facebook. Just search for Stick Together Program. The podcast of this episode and other recent shows can be found on iTunes or by heading to 3cr.org.au forward slash stick together. And finally, remember, no matter where you are or what you do, there is a union for you. My name's Matt Kunkel. Until next time, stick together.